Lord, we come to you knowing you are God alone. May you be in this time today. May you be with us as we listen from your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Y'all may be seated. Thank you to uh, Scott and the team and to Chris and Annie last week and to Scott Chadwick and his team the week before um, for leading us in worship these last few weeks. And I also just want to say um, thank you. Uh, I, I appreciate the uh, honor and the privilege it's been the last few weeks as Pastor Kevin has been on sabbatical to be in front of you, to be preaching the Word of God, and uh, to have your support. And uh, I just, I give thanks for our church, uh, for knowing our, that we are a church who loves God and uh, desires to know Him more. This morning we are finishing up our series called Workmanship. Workmanship, created for a purpose and as we discuss, this series is rooted in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, which says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the first week we talked about how as believers, if we are in Christ, we have been brought from death to life. And God in his mercy and his love showed us grace by sending his only son to die for us. And so if we are believers in Christ, then we have a responsibility as the people of God, as his workmanship, to do good works as we are created for. And last week we talked about how as believers, as individual believers in our church and in our community, we have a responsibility uh, to, have, to be marked by certain things, to be marked by good and, and not by evil, to bring people to Christ and to teach the word of God and to be the church to one another. And today I want to wrap it up, and I want to zoom out a little bit, and I want to talk about us as the church. I want to talk about us as the church. Colossians chapter 3, which is where we're going to be today, Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 1 through 4 real quick. It says, Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ... If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. If you have been raised with Christ, which if we are believers and we have been brought from death to life, then we have been raised with Christ and we are to seek the things that are above where Christ is. Today, I want to talk about what it means to be a Christ-oriented church. What it means to be a Christ-oriented church. Who are we as Fellowship Baptist Church? Are we a church that orients to Christ or that orients to something else? And we're going to be uh, farther down Colossians 3 and verse 12 through 17. Verse 12, Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complained against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, 
Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Like I said, today we're going to be talking about what it means to be a Christ-oriented church. And the first thing I see in this passage is that a Christ-oriented church will exemplify his virtues. A Christ-oriented church will exemplify his virtues. What is a virtue? A virtue is something that, that we consider to be morally right, to be morally correct. It's what we consider a virtue in our lives. And in the verses that come before this, in verses 5 uh, through 11, Paul is talking about the vices that a believer should be put to death. So there's vices, things that we believe are morally wrong, and vi- or virtues, things that we believe are morally right or correct. And so in, in verse uh, 5, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death these virtues, these things that are man-oriented and not Christ-oriented, including sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. These are all a part of our old self, but our new self, like we talked about last week, should be marked by good. Our new self should be marked by Christ's virtues. A morality that comes from the word of God and the example that Christ has set before us. And in verse 12, Paul gives five virtues and tells us that we need to put on these virtues. He uses the language here of put on then as God's chosen one, his people. Put on, clothe yourself and these virtues. He says, first, compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. We are to have hearts that are, are merciful and compassionate towards one another. We are to have hearts that look at the hurts of one another. Like we talked about last week, mourning or weeping with those who weep and having joy with those who have joy, but having compassionate for one another as a church. We are to, second, have kindness. Now, I mean, this is, this is pretty self-explanatory. Be kind. It's a lesson that we probably should have learned when we were small kids, right? How to be kind to one another. But it's to be kind, not hateful. And, and kindness comes in many forms, right? really simple. It's choosing to help someone, choosing to not gossip about someone, choosing to speak in a kind manner towards someone. These are our examples of being kind. Third, we see humility. Humility of the third virtue. We are to esteem others, to lift others up. And, and to make them better than ourselves and to be concerned about one another's welfare rather than our own or before our own. We are to be in humility as the people of God and to be clothing ourselves in that virtue. Fourth is meekness or, or gentleness. It's a consideration for one another. And it's a willing to waive your rights. So it's a willing to say, this isn't about me. I'm going to give up my right to do this I'm going to give up my right of maybe protection or I'm going to give up my right of, of something else that I hold dear in order to have a consideration for one another, meekness. And finally, patience. We all need a little bit of patience, right? Patience, long-suffering, and it's, it's a type of virtue that endures wrong and puts up with the exasperating conduct of others rather than, you know, flying into a rage or desiring vengeance. It's being patient and you know, what's so special about these virtues? What's so special about these virtues? They aren't just good habits to put on, but they're a reflection of the same virtue that Christ has shown us. It's a reflection of the same virtues that Christ has shown us. He is compassionate to us. He is kind to us. He put on humility for us when he went to the cross. He is gentle and patient with us. 
He bears with us. And so we too must work to exemplify and imitate him. Because he has first shown us these virtues, so we must show these virtues to one another. In uh, Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's the key verse. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind, who though Jesus, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do we see here in just the gospel message how Jesus shows us these virtues? He shows us compassion. He shows us uh, uh, humility and, and patience and kindness. And we are to exemplify those as the church. We must work to achieve those virtues in our lives, in our church. And notice I said that we have to work at them. Does it come natural to anybody to be kind or to be patient or to have humility? Like naturally, no, that's, that's not going to come easy to us because at first impression, we want to yearn for the vices. We want to yearn to do the opposites of those, but we have to work at them as the people of God to show these to one another, to show humility and meekness and patience to be compassionate and kind. And as we exemplify these virtues in Christ, that Christ has first shown us, we must, as Paul says, bear with one another and forgive one another, as he writes in verse 13. Our relationships in the church should be marked and characterized by mutual forgiveness and a pardoning of one another, because guess what? We will all have complaints we will have disagreements. We are sinful humans that at some point or another have moments of selfishness or say or do things that may hurt one another and thus have a complaint to give. Here's the deal. If you expect to be in a church where nobody ever gets upset about anything, good luck. <laughs> I'm just saying. If you expect to be in a church where people don't get upset with one another because we are human, then good luck. And so we have to work at forgiving one another. Complaints will come up, issues will be brought up, and situations will happen. But how we respond as a congregation and as believers to those complaints is what's important here. Will we forgive one another and bear with one another when problems come up? And I know this isn't easy, forgiving someone in our church who has hurt us, uh, a brother and sister in Christ who has hurt us. But as believers, we have that responsibility in Matthew 18, Jesus is talking to the disciples. He says in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. If you go and you tell him their fault, if you go to them and say, Look, you have sinned against me, you have hurt me in this way, 
and he listens to you or she listens to you and they say, yes, I see that, I'm sorry, then you have gained a brother. You've gained a sister in Christ. There's no need anymore to continue on um, accusing them of that sin. And, and then Jesus continues, he says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus is talking there about church discipline. How we as the church, when we see somebody in sin, we, we go to them one-on-one, and then we go to them as, as a group, and then we go to them as a church and say, we see this in your life. And Jesus says, if, if, you, if they don't listen, if they don't repent, then let them be to you as a Gentile or an unbeliever. But after Jesus says all this, after Jesus says all this, Peter comes up to him in, in verse 21. And he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against him and I forgive him? Or sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? You know, Jesus just seven times, like I go seven times and then the eighth time I just kind of let it go or I, I, you know, don't forgive him anymore. Is that what I'm supposed to do? And Jesus, which, you know, was common in in Jewish tradition seven times, and Jesus says, no, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And then he gives this account of a master of a king who has a servant who owed him a great debt. It's, It's a debt that uh, was 10,000 talents, which would have been in this time about equivalent to 200,000 years of wages for this servant. So that's an astronomical number, right? That's, there's no way the servant would ever be able to pay this back. This is a huge number, which I think Jesus uses purposely for in his intent. He couldn't pay back the master, and, and Jesus says that the servant, he begged the master to have patience and let him pay it back which, like I said, is impossible, but the master still takes pity on the servant. He takes pity on the servant, and he forgave his debt. He forgave all of it. He didn't know anything. But the story's not over. Jesus continues. He says that the servant, he leaves the master's house, he leaves the king's house, and he finds another servant who owed him about 10 denarii, which would have been about a day's wages. And when that servant begged the first servant to forgive him, just as the first servant had begged the master. The first servant said, no, I'm not going to forgive you of your debt. He refused and he threw him into jail because he couldn't pay his debt. And all the other servants, they went and they told the king what happened and he called the first servant back to him and he said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded to me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And he sent the servant to jail until he could pay all his debts, which, as we saw earlier, is impossible. And Jesus ends this parable with this, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The reason I'm talking about this so much is that I believe this is an important part of being believers in a church, forgiving one another. And why do we forgive? Because the Lord has forgiven us. He has forgiven us of a debt that we cannot pay, a debt for our sin and disobedience. And no matter what we say or do, we cannot pay him back for that. He has forgiven us. And just as he has forgiven us, we must, we must forgive one another. 
And above all these, Paul writes in verse 14, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We saw last week in Romans 12 how our, our love should be genuine and without hypocrisy. And Jesus tells us that all the commandments are summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. And that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But our church must be bound together in love for one another, which will lead to the perfection and holiness that are marks of the body of Christ. I mean, honestly, like the Beatles put it, all you need is love. Amen? The problem is, it's a challenge for us to put on love, right? Just like it's a challenge for us to forgive and to put on these virtues, it's a challenge for us to love, which is why we need to be forgiving, which is why we need to be compassionate and have humility and meekness and patience. Because if we have those, if we have those virtues and we show those virtues towards one another, then we as the church can easily show love. We can easily show love. It is through love that the body of Christ will be built up. Just as God loves us and gave himself for us, so we too as the church must put on the love of Christ. And don't show love to one another just in order to get them on your side or for any selfish reasons. Let love be genuine. When we clothe ourselves in these virtues, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, bound together by love, then we as the people of God, can truly exemplify his virtues, the same virtues that he shows us. Does Fellowship Baptist Church exemplify Christ's virtues? Do we as a church do that? I apologize. Let me do that. All right, we're good to go. Verse 15. Verse 15. Paul writes, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Second, we see that a Christ-oriented church will submit to his peace. A Christ-oriented church will submit to his peace. Do we submit to the peace and the well-being of Christ? Do we allow his peace to rule in our hearts and in our church? The peace of Christ is overwhelming comfort and encouragement his peace in which we can find wholeness, completeness, and totality is to hold authority and to rule over the whole of our lives as we relate to one another. Christ is to be present in our midst. In Philippians 1.27, Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Here's the deal. The enemy, the devil, doesn't want peace. The enemy doesn't want peace, and so he creates chaos. He creates division and confusion, and he creates a church that's in disarray, not united. A church that's definitely, as Paul writes, not striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. But as the body of Christ, if we're allowing the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts and in our midst, then we as a church can be united. We can be united. In John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. In other words, Jesus is saying the peace that the world offers, 
the, the peace that the world says, this is how you obtain peace, that's not the peace I'm leaving you. My peace is better. Because my peace will not allow your hearts to be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither, neither let them be afraid. This is the peace that God gives us, that we have full assurance that our hearts won't be troubled if we submit to his peace. It's to be a guiding light in our church. Ken, if you'll throw up that picture. Um, when I got married a few weeks ago, uh, behind where our ceremony was were these two lighthouses. And they, these two lighthouses are right off the coast of Massachusetts and Rockport. And um, they are called... They, they're called the Cape Ann Light Station, and they're the only surviving multiple lights on the coast of the United States. And these, these towers, they were actually constructed in uh, 1789, which makes them among the oldest of America's lighthouses. And what's, what's really cool about these two towers is that the way they were built and the way they were set up is they were built so that if you were in line with them, so if the towers came in line, the ships would know and the captains would know that they were going directly north, that they were going directly north. And it was their guide. And if they got out of line a little bit and the, and the lighthouses look like this, then obviously they're not heading north. At this point, they're heading east, right? But if they're approaching the lighthouses, which stick out into the ocean from the side or from the, from the bottom or the top, the lighthouses would come directly like this and line up with one another. And so the sailors would know, okay, I'm going north. I'm going the correct way. And they could adjust their compass. And they could adjust their ships and their maps. They could adjust their ships and the maps. And the peace of Christ should be like that. The peace of Christ should be like that. It should be ruling in our midst. It should be a way for us to adjust our compass. When we say, I'm not going to depend on the world. And I'm not going to depend on the peace that society tells me I need, but I'm going to depend as a church, we are going to depend on the peace that Christ brings to bring us into line, to bring us united. So we seek him and we seek the Savior and submit to his peace. And Paul ends verse 15 by saying, and be thankful. We are to be thankful. We are to have a regular unceasing thanks to God, which is what we should strive for. As we'll see in a minute, giving thanks is a part of our corporate worship but it shouldn't be only in the corporate sphere. Under all circumstances, as the peace of Christ is ruling in our midst, we are to give thanks to God. Give thanks to God for who he is. Do, does Fellowship Baptist Church submit to Christ's peace? Do we as a church submit to Christ's peace? Let's go down to verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The third point in this passage that we see is that a Christ-oriented church will mature through his teaching. A Christ-oriented church will mature through his teaching. If the peace of Christ is ruling in us, then the word of Christ should be dwelling among us. Is the word of Christ, is the word of God dwelling in our church have we built a community here at Fellowship that is centered around the gospel and the good news that starts with Adam and Eve and ends with Christ returning again? Do we as a church center our lives around that? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
Paul writes to Timothy, verse 14, and he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we are a church that's going to be doing the good work of Christ as God's workmanship, then we have to be a church that matures through the teaching of his word. We have to be a church that says we believe in what the word of God says from the totality of scripture that it is without error that every word is true and reliable and that we turn to it and, and breathe it out and, and, and teach it and allow it for reproof and for correction and training in righteousness. The scripture, the word of God is to dwell in our midst. It is to dwell here and it's to dwell richly. You know, if something is rich, what does that mean? If I say that a cake is rich in peanut butter, or that a city is rich in tradition, or the soil is rich in nutrients. What does that mean? It means there's a lot of it, right? If I say that that cake is rich in peanut butter, then there is a lot of peanut butter in that cake, and it is delicious. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> if I say that a city is rich in tradition, that means there's a lot in that city that is, is seeped in tradition. If I say that the soil is rich in nutrients, that means that there is a lot of nutrients in the soil. So if the word of Christ is dwelling richly in our midst, then what does that mean? That means that there is a lot of it. That means that it is rich here. It is seeped in our church. The church needs to be rich in the word of Christ, and the word of Christ needs to be a huge part of who we are, of what we do, and the decisions that we make. We are to use it, as Paul says, to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, the wisdom here being God's wisdom, which can be found only in the Bible. And we are to sing songs and uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in it. And you might say, well, sharing the word of God is for the pastors and teachers here. I just make sure I'm listening. I think that's a common response sometimes. But is that all the word of Christ is here for at fellowship? Is it just for Kevin or I to stand up here on stage and tell it to you and you listen? No. It's not just for a 40-minute sermon on Sunday mornings. I believe for us the word of Christ is going to dwell richly in us in two ways, in worship and in discipleship. So there is the teaching of the word, which is an important part of what we do. But as a church, we also we worship together. We, we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, just as we have this morning, just as we do. We strive as a church to sing songs that are rich in Scripture, to sing songs that are rich in theology that we believe. We strive to make sure that the, the words that we are singing are ones that are true and come from the Word of God. As, as, it, as it dwells richly in our midst and is our authority, it will lead us to teach and admonish one another in these psalms and in this worship. I mean, you have to remember that when Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, at this point, the word of Christ is, is given orally. There isn't, there isn't a New Testament at this time. There isn't a bound leather version of the ESV Bible when Paul's writing this letter. 
And so the way that the, that the story of Jesus, that the history of Jesus, that what Jesus did, that Jesus brings life and salvation was given orally. It was taught and it was also sane. They would sing these psalms together, these hymns together as a church. Not, not the hymns found in your Baptist hymnal, but they would sing the scripture and the story together as a church and it would unite them. And today, we do have the Word of God bound up in, in our Bibles, but that doesn't mean that we stop singing the songs. We still sing them together. John Piper says a, a congregation learns its theology not just by the preaching they hear, but by the songs they sing. Not just by the preaching they hear, but by the songs they sing. When we sing on Sunday mornings, when we're singing songs of worship, then we need to be listening to the words we're singing and I just want to challenge us, if you we're ever singing something or leading something that isn't biblically correct, and you're like, that doesn't seem right, make sure to come tell us, right? Okay, good. So first worship and then discipleship. Discipleship. Discipleship, the process of moving us towards spiritual maturity as the body of Christ. The process, the process of moving us towards spiritual maturity as the, Bible of, the body of Christ. If we are to mature in our faith, then that involves diving deep into the Word of God with one another. That means that if I'm a new believer, there's somebody, there's an older believer coming alongside me and saying, here's what this means. Here's what this means. Let me, let me show you. You have questions. Let me answer your questions by showing you what the Word of God says. You have situations coming up. Let me teach you how to deal with these situations by what the Word of God says. And by doing that, whether in a large group setting or small group setting or one-on-one, -on -one, we will grow in the knowledge of the Word of God. And like Paul told Timothy, it will allow for training in righteousness. Teaching each other the Word of God, discipling one another will move people towards maturity. And again, as we saw in verse 15, thankfulness is an important part of all of it. We are to be thankful as the word of Christ dwells in us. It should lead us to the teaching and admonishing through worship and discipleship with a mindset of thankfulness in our hearts. In our singing, may we lift our voice in thanks. In our teaching and admonition, may we give thanks for the word of God. As the people of God, we will only mature if we allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly, to dwell in us richly. And we are all at different places in our faith. Some of us are believers, have been believers for 80 days. Some of us have been believers for 80 years. But there will never and there should never be a time when the word of Christ, the gospel, no longer has a place in this church and no longer matters for us as believers. As long as we live, we can continue to mature and our faith. Does Fellowship Baptist Church mature through Christ's teaching? Do we do that? Finally, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The last thing we're going to see in this passage is that a Christ-oriented church will represent him in action. A Christ-oriented church will represent him in action. To be a representative or an ambassador of Christ, we are to do everything in his name. Think of an ambassador for a country. They go on authority of the country they're serving, on the authority of the government. They represent their country in other places around the world. 
They're making decisions, they're authorizing deals, and they're meeting with world leaders all under the authority of their government and leadership. They gain special privileges and protections to carry out the work of their government. And as the church, we have a responsibility to be ambassadors under a heavenly kingdom with God and Jesus Christ as our leader. And so everything that we do and everything that we say should represent the name of Jesus Christ. When we become Christians, we call upon the name of the Lord. We say that he is our Lord and we come under his authority and we belong wholly to him. And so everything that we do and say should represent him in action. Our behavior should be entirely consistent with Jesus' character. And this will only occur as the word of Christ richly indwells in our church. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul's instructions to the church in Corinth are this, whatever you eat or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you eat and whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And the decisions we make and the actions we do and the programs we have in, or our worship, we are to do all of it to the glory of God and everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And how are we to do this, according to Colossians 3? Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, this is the third time in as many verses that Paul mentions this, giving thanks. So it's, it's important, right? We are to give thanks. Okay, uh, I'm saying it a lot because Paul says it a lot. Just clarify that. But, but Paul gives us, he said he exhorts the Colossians to give thanks to God and to give thanks and to do everything in the name of Jesus. Everything, because if we're not doing it for Jesus, then we're doing it for someone else, right? If we're not doing it for Jesus, then we're doing it either for ourselves or for somebody else or for the world, but there should be only one person that all of our glory, all of our actions, all of our words, all of our deeds should go to and represent, and that is Jesus Christ. May he receive the honor and praise, not us. May he get the glory, not us. Does Fellowship Baptist Church represent Christ in action? Does he, do we represent Christ in action? For we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to end it on this. The church is God's workmanship, and we have been created to do something good, to be a part of something that God has prepared for us since the beginning of time. What can we do to be a church that is Christ-oriented? to be a church that follows this model of church living that exemplifies his virtues, that submits to his peace, matures through his teaching, and represents him in action. And I want to challenge us today as a church, because being part of a local church means that we are making a covenant to this group of believers right here in Saginaw, Texas, that we will sit under the teaching and authority of Scripture, that we will minister to one another with compassion, kindness, humility, and meekness, and patience, that we will forgive one another when we have a complaint, and that we will submit to the peace of Christ in unity, giving thanks for all. Doing the good works of God is not for an isolated believer. We can't be believers in isolation. We can do good works alone, yes. We can do good works by ourselves, but together as the church, as the community, the ecclesia, spoken of over a hundred times in the New Testament, 
We are to be a church that is together and orienting ourselves to this model that Paul teaches. And how can we do that? Because I think some days we do a really good job of it. But I think other days we don't do so well. Every church has it. There are days that we orient ourselves to Christ really well and then there's some days that we don't. But how can we make our church look more like this? May we commit ourselves today as the body of Christ as the church, to seek to make disciples in every generation who will make disciples in every nation, to be in a church that follows this model that Paul lays out in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. And it's not going to be easy because we can all improve and mature in these areas. We all need a little help being kind and compassionate and patient with one another. We all need a little help in forgiving one another when someone else in this congregation has hurt us. We could all do with a little more of Christ's peace and his word dwelling richly among us. But imagine what our church would look like if it looked like this. Imagine what our church could look like. Imagine the light we could shine in our community, in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces. What if we were a church who said that we would commit to truly living this out in our midst? It would involve all of us, family and Families and couples and moms and dads, students, older members, younger members, all of us. You know, Pastor Kevin and I, we want to see this in our church. We want to see us orienting to Christ as a church, but we can't do it without you. Joe Cortapasi and Courtney, they want to see that in their students, right? Amen. Amen. The youth staff want to see that. They have a burning desire to see that, to see your students being raised up in the Word of God and living this out in their lives. But we have to commit to them as parents and families in the church that we want to see this as well. Right, Joe? Right. You know, I want to see this with our kids and our volunteers, but unless we commit together, united as a church to doing this, to following the Word of God, to following this model, it's going to be difficult but why can't we do it? Why can't we be a church who is Christ-oriented, exemplifying his virtues, submitting to his peace, maturing through his teaching, and representing him in action? It's going to take all of us committing to it, but I believe that our church can look like this. I believe that all of us who want to be here, who want to commit to this, can do this together. Let's make this happen. Let's be a church who truly is God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. This morning, that's my challenge to us as believers and as the church, as fellowship Baptists, that we will be together. Is this something we can get in on? Yes? Is this something we can do? I mean, we even gave you a fancy note sheet, so you can take it and tape it on your refrigerator. Not tape. Why would you tape? There's magnets for that. Put it on magnets on your refrigerator and and look at it and have it in your Bible. Maybe every day before you walk into the church, hold it up in front of you and say, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, might be challenging, but I'll do it. And then we show that to one another and we be that model of church living. But I know that not all of, while this is a message that is, is primarily for believers And for our church, I know there may be some people here today who don't have that relationship with Christ, who don't know the word of God, who has, maybe you've seen church in a negative way before. Maybe you've been hurt by a church. 
And I just want to invite you today to come and know the Savior that we represent, to come and know the Word of God that we want to dwell in us, to know the peace of Christ and to allow it to rule in your life. I invite you today, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, but you want it, it's really simple. It's admitting that you're a sinner, admitting that you need forgiveness, and asking God for that forgiveness and repenting of your sins. It's believing in your hearts that what the Word of God says is true, that God sent His only Son to die on a cross for us so that we may have eternal life, that who took his, our sins upon Himself as a sacrifice and then was raised from the dead and will return again one day. It involves believing in that and then confessing that Lord, that Jesus, as your Lord, saying, I'm going to allow you, Jesus Christ, to have the rule and the authority in my life. If you're here today and you're looking for a Savior, I invite you to come talk to me, come talk to any of our, our, our staff or our worship team or our deacons, and, and we will share with you Jesus and how to go about that. Because as a church, we want to see that happen right? We want to see people brought to Jesus. We want to see lives changed, and then we want to see them be discipled to, to mature in their faith. And for the rest of us, how about we do this? How about we commit to this as a church? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up at this time. I'm going to ask that as we pray, just silently in your hearts, ask God to help us as a church to do this, to be united in Christ, to submit to his peace and to exemplify his virtues and to show our church and our community that he is God and he loves us. Father, we come to you today knowing that you are God, that you are the God who is above heaven and earth, who created all of us. And Lord, we know that in you we may have life and have it abundantly. That in you we may be freed from our sins. No matter what our earthly circumstances may be, may we recognize, Lord, that in you we have freedom. Father, I ask that we as a church together will commit to this, that we will commit to being your workmanship, to commit to the good works that you have prepared for us. That we won't shy away from showing patience and forgiveness to one another that we won't shy away from representing you in what we say and do. But Lord, I pray as a church that we may be strengthened together, that we may endure together, and we may turn to you, Father, and be a church that is oriented to you, that seeks you, Lord, and nothing else. We love you, Father. We thank you for this time that we've been together today. And we ask, Lord, that you will work in our midst and that your Holy Spirit will be present here. Thank you, Lord. We love you. To your name we pray. Amen. Y'all may uh, stand at this time. I'm gonna be down front if you wanna talk or if you need prayer. I'm gonna be right here. If you need to talk about Jesus, I'll be right here. Scott.